Lord, as we consider the topic within the passage, I pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves to see how we're doing. So, Lord, we can know that we have progress in the Lord. Since the day we believed, every day there should be progress. There should be something we're growing in, something we're delighting in that we didn't delight in before. And I pray that ultimately it would bring us to live our life, to have a relationship with you in which we are growing in our love for you, Lord, and our understanding of what's going on in the world and what we're to do while we live here. I pray every day we would learn to live before your eyes, before anybody else. And if we live there, Lord, we don't really have to be concerned about anybody else. So I pray, Lord, allow us to live there from the inside out, live before your eyes. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So where we came from, and uh, where we're going, it's not working. All right, so what I mentioned last time is that uh, we are given several exhortations in Scripture. The first one would be that we are exhorted to have a fixed hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 13, it says, There, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So according to 1 Peter, spiritual sobriety will be important in two specific areas. The first area would be in the area of, well, I'll mention them in a, in a minute, but in these two particular areas was that we're to be this way for what reason? For the purpose of prayer, as I mentioned last time, and also for the purpose of resisting the adversary, and we're going to find that that is going to take place for you and I next uh, couple chapters in First Peter is that we're going to understand the enemy and his character and he, how he actually works in our life. So the reason Christians can be sober, decisive in their minds, is because they have a hope in Christ. They have a, f- a fixed hope on what Christ has done, what he is doing now, and what he will ultimately complete. And that, that of course, has been the point in this whole section of Scripture, our salvation, understanding our salvation. And so we've been looking at the holiness of salvation, and we already looked under the second exhortation, and that, of course, would be the exhortation to live a holy life and fixed hope to live a holy life and then also under that, the reason why we are, uh, we are to live a holy life is because we, as, as it says in verse number 14, as obedient children, we're no longer children of disobedience, we're no longer children of wrath, children of darkness, we're no longer children of the curse, but now we have become obedient children to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because of that, uh, that, as I said last time, assumes certain givens And that first one is you have listened uh, and, of course, received the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. That's what saved you in the person of Christ. And then now you understand what the Lord requires of you from the word of God. And then now you are willing to do what the Lord says in order to live a holy life. And the things that, the, the first thing that we mentioned is in verse number 14. It says that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which, you were, which were yours in your ignorance. So we, what are we to do? We are warned not to do or to be. Uh, in our new natures, we are warned that we, are, we should not be with the way we used to be, but now we are made new. And so this obedience leads to responsibility. And then, of course, another one would be that we... Today is we are commanded to be what we're commanded to be in our new spiritual natures, and we are commanded in verse 15 and 16, and I'm going to kind of park here on these two verses 
this morning and look other places in the scripture. But notice what it says. It says, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, of course, Peter quotes from directly from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and verse 45, where it says, for I am the Lord your God. And notice how it says it there. It says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves un yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now in this context, the people of God were called out by God to be significantly different than all the nations and all the peoples around them right down to what they could or could not eat. All right, so that was the context there in the Old Testament, that they were to be different than all the other nations. They weren't even to eat the same. They weren't to look the same. They weren't to worship the same. They weren't to do the same things. They were to be different. So this, this adjective, holy, both in the Hebrew language and the Greek language, includes in its meaning synonyms like Consecrate, that's why it's used in this passage here, or to set apart for or by God things that are not common or things would end up being special or of higher value or of superior, of a superior nature. That which, of course, is the best word is different. So you look in the, in the word of God and you see holy ground, you see holy vessels, you see holy places, you see holy days. We actually derive the word holiday from the term holy. What is a holiday? A holiday is a special day, a day different than all the rest of the regular days of the year. All right? So it's, it's different. We do different things. We maybe are, are off from work or we have special food or a special focus on that particular holiday that we're uh, breaking apart from our regular schedules to be a part of. And so a person who is holy is like that. They're different because God makes them different, but then they're to cooperate with that difference. When someone hears the gospel and responds to Jesus Christ by repenting of their sins and trusting him alone for their salvation. They are, at that point, set apart unto God and as holy. And when God touches you, you become different. You become special to God. You become holy or sanctified, another word for holy. You become God's possession, and only God, can put the touch on something or someone that changes it or them from something commonplace to something special and different and set apart. So if you look again at our passage, where and notice where holiness is to be manifest in our life. It, it, this is not something that we cannot recognize this is something that should be very recognizable. Notice again in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, all right? And then it says, in all your behavior. So there it is, right there. You will become increasingly holy in all your behavior. But I must warn you at this particular point that I'm not talking about moralism here. And the Bible is not talking about moralism. Moralism is really an improvement in your behavior, period. The Bible here is talking about transformation. You are being transformed by God, not something you're cleaning up on the outside and nothing happening on the inside. That's moralism. What God does is he starts cleaning you up on the inside, and then it, what, comes out of your life in behavior. And everybody has behavior. 
Matter of fact, we can tell a lot of stuff about someone's behavior. We can tell a lot about them, the way they behave, right? We don't even have to have talk one word, just observe them, see their actions, see, their, see how they use their eyes, see how their brow goes up and down, see how their shoulders shrug, or whatever they're doing just by body language can tell a lot about someone's behavior. So see, the, the passage of Scripture is very pointed, is that you are to be holy, that's for sure, but you're to be holy in a specific area, and that is your behavior. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning about this particular point because I don't want you walking out of here not understanding it. This is not ritual correctness, but genuine holiness. So you see, the Old Testament, the law, did not impart the power to fulfill the, the demand to be holy. However, the cross of Calvary, in which Jesus died and shed his blood, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost changed all of that. Why did it change that? By providing divine enablement to carry out this command. This command is impossible to carry out without without God intervening and the Spirit of God indwelling you. You cannot do it. So the command is very clear in Scripture. God is holy, and because of his holy character, if you're called to be a Christian, you're called to be holy, and you can see it in your behavior. So there's certain things that I want to bring out concerning that. The Holy Spirit in sanctification, I'll look more on this later on, but the Holy Spirit makes us holy, and as we cooperate with his promptings, and what is his promptings? For you to put off your sin, but not just to put it off, that's not where you end in repentance, but to put on righteousness, we become, in that process, increasingly holy, increasingly sanctified. See, God furnishes the power and the ability, and as a result of the salvation call, you are called and I am called to a life of holy progress. That's the way to put it. John Calvin referred to this as a definitive sanctification. What he meant by this is that sanctification changes the human nature such that a believer no longer wants to continue sinning. The same faith, he said, by which the sinner is justified also makes the sinner sanctified. So that means that in the gospel, there is also sanctification. Right, So sanctification, again, and holiness, when I use th those two, uh, two terms are synonymous. They're the same. When the Bible uses, some translations use the word holy. Sometimes they'll, they'll translate the word holy as being sanctified or, you know, or being set apart even or there is used in the word of God. So this is when what happens in sanctification and holiness, that's when our hearts and our lives are conformed to the law. It is communicated to us by means of teaching and learning something that we cannot see without the Word of God. We would never recognize it. We would never know it without the Word of God. And notice the passage here. It says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So that's the gospel sanctification. The gospel sanctifies us, but what continues that process of sanctification? Well, that process is continued in the doctrine of, of course, doctrine in sanctification, and doctrine simply is teaching. That's all it is, teaching. That means, if you notice this passage, it says there is a form of doctrine made use of by God to make people free from sin and then servants of righteousness. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So in other words, we went from one slavery to another slavery. We went from the slavery of sin, which is a cruel master who wants to keep you in bondage and blindness, to now a good master who wants to free you up to give you understanding about what God is doing and who God is and what you are to be doing. See, it frees us up to understand righteousness. Now, a, a, a simple way of defining righteousness is the right way to think and live. And God is the one who does that. Also, in Scripture, further, we can know how to put our armor on in order to stand against sin and Satan in the evil day, where it says in Ephesians 6.13. So all these things are included when we think about this subject of sanctification. And then the word of God in sanctification, which becomes very, very important. Now, I want you to take your Bibles quickly and turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture uh, to most believers. It's one that you kind of almost learn right away, uh, especially in a discipleship situation, where it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Answers the question, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So in other words, sanctification uh, in the word of God becomes very important to us, that the Word of God gives plenty of instruction in righteousness that believers may thoroughly be furnished for everything God wants you to know and do. In fact, there is no attaining to holiness and godliness without learning the Holy Scriptures. It is work to learn the Word of God. The Bible says, be workmen who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? The word of God. It's work. Even double effort must be given to study because we must unlearn many of our former deeply rooted notions and our misguided passions and desires, which is our problem, all right? The, the deep-seated stuff in our heart the words God's going to dig right down there and get it all out. All the garbage is going to rise to the surface. And believe me, as I say before, God doesn't allow all that garbage to rise all at once. Because if, it, if he did, we would probably have a, a, a pretty good, maybe the worst horror story that we could maybe never deal with. God allows us to see it bit by bit. And as we see it, we deal with it. We don't ignore it there. So we do have misguided passions and desires, right? We, we, we desire the wrong things. We have passions and goals for the wrong uh, uh, ends in our life. And so therefore, God's going to have to change all that. The word of God, in other words, will redirect just about everything in our old way of thinking and doing. Just about everything. If I was to put a percentage on it, I'd probably say 99.9% .9 of everything that you ever knew has to be changed because we came at it with a sinful heart. We came at it with the knowledge that we got from the world and from the deception that Satan threw along our path all our life to keep us in bondage. So in other words, what I'm saying is that we must be taught the word of God. We must learn it, and once we learn it, that's not the end. We need to practice it now. We need to actually put it into practice. So we must pray earnestly to the Lord to teach us as well as to search the scriptures that we must get this knowledge. We must get this understanding from the word of God. We're not going to get it from anywhere else but the word of God. Now, if you look at these passages of scriptures that I'm going to put on the screen in a minute, you're going to find in each one of them there's an indication to someone being taught the word of God. Something they could have not known 
unless God taught them. And so, again, we come to the Word of God, and it is God's Word. The Word of God's going to teach us things. Right up here it says, here is a few of them. The psalmist, the one writing these great songs in Scripture, what does it say? Teach me, O Lord, the, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. All right, so what do we have? We have, we have David and the psalmist teaching uh, learning to be taught by God. Psalm 143, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. That means I didn't know how to love God unless God directs me there. I didn't know how to do the will of God unless God teaches me what the will of God is. I cannot know the ways of God's statutes unless I learn them from him, but then I must observe them. They, it goes together. All those things go together. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer in John 17 sanctified them. Who's them? His disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. So the only way, there's that word sanctify, right? That's the word holy. Make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them different. That's what the Lord prayed there. And for every one of the true disciples of Jesus Christ, that will take place. Now, if you notice in these passages, there is a dependence on the Word of God in in order to apply ourselves to this holy practice. So that means we cannot apply ourselves to this practice except we trust the Lord for divine assistance. Without This assistance, we have no ground to expect any hope of success or forward movement in holiness. So it is evident that we cannot practice true holiness while we are continuing in a natural state or an unsafe state. Now, another passage I want you to turn to is Romans chapter 8 because it gives us some specifics in Romans 8 about what I just said. In Romans 8, verse number 8, now we're born, we must be born of the Spirit, in other words, and Scripture teaches us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then being in the Spirit, in the spirit is the cause of holiness. And, of course, as the next verse says in Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you realize how important the Holy Spirit of God is in not only salvation but sanctification. So the apostle brings it all together in the next passage in verse 10. Of Romans 8, it says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, you're, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, what is happening there in that passage? We learn from Scripture that the old and the new man are two contrary states contained in them not only is sin, but also of holiness. But all other things are contained therein that dispose and incline us to practice something other in the old man that is holy. So then the old man must be put off as crucified with Christ before we can be freed from the practice of sin. Now, if you go back a chapter or so in Romans chapter 6, this is what what it reads there. It says, knowing, Romans 6, verse 6 and 7, it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now we would become slaves to righteousness. So putting off sinfulness and putting on holiness 
in all manner of behavior is what Peter is talking about in his epistle. Now, that means something. That means that we actually can have a correct gospel order of holiness and sanctification. The correct gospel order toward a holy life is as follows. God first purges our consciences from dead works by justification that we may serve the living God. It tells us in Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in other words, the cleansed conscience must come first before we can properly understand God and serve him. Those are definitely orders or correct order of holiness. And then we have the passage of Scripture in Galatians 5.25, where it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. All right, now, that means this. First, we have to live in the Spirit. That means we have to be made alive in the Spirit. The Spirit has to indwell us, all right? And then, secondly, we can walk in the Spirit. You cannot walk in the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. So you can't walk a walk of holiness without the Holy Spirit. You must be alive in God By believing the gospel, the Spirit of God now indwells you, and because he indwells you, you now can walk in the Spirit. That's the order. That's the correct order. You can't reverse those things. That must and always be the order. So in other words, again, against moralism, a person could walk and change their behavior, but it's not the Spirit of God prompting them to do it. They may just decide to do it. Somebody may push them to do it. A counselor may bring them to the place to do it, all right? But... Anybody can change their behavior in this area or that area from time to time in their life, depending on maybe how much it destroyed your life, right? Stop doing that behavior, because look what it's doing to you and others, right? And so you learn to stop it. Some people don't learn to stop it. But in this case, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the Spirit of God indwells you, you will change. Comprehensively, you will change. Not just in one area, all areas. And God changes us first in our minds. So knowing this order gives us an advantage for attainment of holiness. You will have, in other words, the advantage of the love of God manifested towards you. Do you know, as a believer, I know God loves me now. Before, I didn't know my position standing before God. A lot of times we feared God because we didn't know anything about him. But see, Love casts out fear, the Bible says, right? So when I know God loves me, I know that he forgives my sin. I know that he's received me into his favor. I know that he has given me the spirit of adoption where he adopted me into his family, and he's given me a hope of his glory freely through Christ Jesus. I know that already. You you realize how huge that is to know that? People their whole life tried to search for that in this religion, in that religion, in that meditation, this meditation, this way and this way, and never find it. Someone comes to Christ, now you get your questions answered. You have to come to Christ first before you can have your questions adequately answered. And when the Spirit of God comes, what does he do? He comes to persuade you with sweet allurements, to love God who has so dearly loved you and to love others for his sake, not for your sake, and to give up yourselves to the obedience of all his commands out of a hearty love for him. And that's very key. The key is that I, these, when we obey the Lord, it's not just by you must do this. No, it's by a hearty love for God. That's how I do it, and that's how you're to do it. So you will also enjoy at that point the help of the Spirit of God to incline you powerfully, really powerfully, to obedience and to strengthen you for the 
performance of it against all your remaining corruptions and all the temptations Satan could throw at you so that you will have everything you need and I need to move forward in this practice of holiness. So therefore, holiness in this life is absolutely necessary to salvation. You cannot separate the two. Because it's not only the end, but it's as part of the end itself. The true gospel faith, true gospel faith makes us come to Christ with a thirsty appetite that we drink of the living water, even of his sanctifying spirit, not only to trust Christ for true salvation, but a hearty desire to be made holy and righteous. We have a hearty desire. And who does that? The Spirit of God does that. Matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture I want you to turn to in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. And what's interesting about this passage of Scripture, it was said by the Lord before the Spirit of God came. Remember, Jesus had to leave the earth before the Spirit of God can be poured out, right? He had to be gone bodily. While Jesus was here, he was the manifestation of God on earth. But when he leaves, he sends his spirit. Notice what it says, John 7, verse 37. John 7, verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is giving us a sequence of of the promise of the Father in this passage of Scripture. Listen, I have to leave before the Spirit of God comes. That's why he tells his disciples, it's expedient that I leave so the Spirit of God can, can, can finish the work. So in other words, the Spirit of God is, is, is completing the unfinished work of Christ through his church, through you and I. That's what he's doing. So Jesus had to go back to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father and now making intercession for the saints. Why he had to do that is because the Spirit of God had to come, right? Now that means for you and I that the Spirit of God, there's the passage of Scripture, the Spirit of God is important in our sanctification. And so, what does that mean? That the Holy Spirit of God in sanctification, that means this. What is sanctification? Well, we have to start with justification, to sanctification. When when we became Christian, the first thing that takes place is that you are justified, right? God declares you just before him. I am pronounced just by God because I believed in Christ. At that point, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit in which he begins the gradual process of holiness, sanctification. In other words, change in you and I starts to happen once we believe in Christ. That starts to happen immediately. Why? Because the Spirit of God's in you. It starts the instant we are justified, but it's not, of course, complete until we are received into glory, until we drop off these bodies and go into glory. Like it says in Romans, he also justified, and these whom he justified, those he also glorified. So the process starts, right, where it's finished in glory. And, but in the meantime, what happens? We start experiencing warfare. We start understanding there's an internal struggle going on inside of us because we still sin. It's like what Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 24. He said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, the body of this death? That was the question he asked. Now, they, they think that this is an illusion. That's an illusion to a military person who committed a crime on uh, the crime of murder, and for his punishment, a dead body was chained to his own until it completely decomposed. Well, this is a, really a picture of a 
Christian. Our old man is dead, but he's still there and giving off decaying odor until we are glorified. And finally, drop off this body of death and go to heaven and be with the Lord forever. So we're experiencing this warfare between now what the Spirit of God wants us to do and what the remaining corruption that we bring and drag into our Christian life wants us to do. So remember, God has to remake us. He has to to create us new again, and so he's going to do that in our passions and desires. So the Holy Spirit of God is cleaning us up. That's what he's doing. He's making changes in our lives, bringing us into conformity to what? To the will of God. To what does God want? How do I know how to please God? And this conformity happens from the inside out. It doesn't happen from the outside in. We're not just cleaning the outside up. We, we can all fake behavior, right? Kids know how to do that. People know, we know how to say the right things to the right people in the right context. We're smart enough to do that. So we can, we can actually fake behavior, but this is not fake. This is real because there's a struggle going on inside of me that I am dealing with what the Word of God says on what I ought to be, and I'm dealing it inside because the Spirit of God is now convicting me. He's convicting you. Conforting, and this conformity, of course, being changed from the inside out, also God wants us to see something. He wants us to see in our life fruit, right? If we're going to have changed behavior, as, Tim, as Peter says, if that's where holiness is going to be manifested, don't we have to see it? Don't we have to recognize when it's there? Don't other people have to see the change in our life? You know? So God wants us to see the fruit of what the Spirit of God is doing inside of us. He wants you to see the fruit, too. So the goal of the Christian life is righteousness. We are being sanctified so that we will do what is right and pleasing to the Lord. Now, just again, if you just forgot where I'm where this is coming from, uh, let me remind you again from our passage. It says, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So where is this holiness and sanctifying process seen? It's seen in our behavior. So in other words, that word, their behavior, is the center of concern in sanctification. Behavior shows what is and what is not going on inside your heart. So that means no internal, if there's no internal transformation, it may mean that a person's not a believer. But it, it, it may mean also that they're masking around, uh, they're masquerading around with righteous behavior with no internal change. That's called hypocrisy. And that's why the Bible warns against hypocrisy. The whole, the whole uh, last prophet, Malachi, is a book about hypocrisy. Don't be like this. Don't start questioning the love of God. Don't, say, don't start saying in your heart, it's not profitable to serve God. Since I've been a Christian, look all the stuff that's happening. My life seems to be better before I was a Christian. Now I have all these troubles. Now I'm dealing with all this internal struggle going, going through in my heart. I didn't have that before. See, those are the things that are going to take place in our minds. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us to change us, to produce good fruit in us. Now, if you're in the membership class, you're going to see this again, and I'm not going to flesh this out right now, but I'm going to give you some things that... um, are important to know that the fruit, what kind of fruit are we looking for? First of all, we're looking for fruit uh, of your daily connectedness to Christ, right? John, of course, 15 talks about the vine and the branches. If you're not connected to the, to the vine, right? If you're one of the branches on the vine, if you're not connected to it, if you're cut off from it, what's going to happen? You're going to die away. But if you're connected to the vine, Christ, you're going to live. 
You're going to be supplied everything you need to live. So there's going to be some fruit of daily connectedness to Christ, how much you're depending on Christ, how much you're growing in your love of Christ, how much you're putting into practice what you're learning about Christ. All right, And then, of course, there's going to be the fruit of the manifestations of uh, spiritual fruit. Galatians talks about all those things, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness and goodness, and all those things are going to be manifest in your life. Remember, but it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. That means it's singular. It's all happening at once. And so you and I have to see where we are growing and where we're not growing in that process. And then, of course, underneath that would be, of course, the fruit of words. What are the words that I used to use, but I'm very cautious that I don't use those words or those terminolo- that terminology again because it is not right to do and it's not pleasing to the Lord. Or actions. What actions have I constantly used in the past that since I've become a Christian, those actions need to change? All right, what about the fruit of righteousness? What are right behaviors that uh, I'm, I haven't been doing that I should be doing in my life? And I'm basing all this on understanding what the Word of God is saying. And then, of course, what about the fruit of the fear of the Lord? Am I fearing God more than I ever have? And, of course, that, that's, that's in a proper way, and I'll explain that next message. And then, of course, the fruit of what about service and good works? Where are those in your life? Where's the service and good works in your life? Can I see them? What are they? Can you write them down on a paper? What you've been doing the last year, what you do the last year, that you would grew in these areas? Um, of course, if you're not serving and if you're not being involved with good works, usually your problem is you're, sin- you're selfish, you're self-centered. So all those things need to change so you can serve people. And then what about the last one I'm mentioning here is what about the fruit of souls? Are you concerned to share the gospel with someone you, you know doesn't know Christ? And, you, and you're, you're not only concerned to do it, but you're going to find out how to do it and what to say and what not to say. And, um, and you're going to learn the scriptures you can use to be able to share the gospel with people. The fruit of souls uh, is something that God's going to grow us in. We realize there's a, a bunch of people that are heading to a lost eternity without Christ, right? And are we concerned about it? If the church is not concerned about them, who's going to be? See, that's what the Spirit of God's doing in our heart. He's giving us a worldview that we never had before. He's giving us an eternal view that we never had before. And he's giving us a real good view of ourselves that we didn't think we were like. I didn't think I was like that. I mean, to tell the truth, for me, I thought I was, I would, thought I was a nice, good, loving kid. When I became a Christian, I found out I was not, not good and I wasn't loving. <laughs> but it was the word of God that brought that to my attention. It's the spirit of God that convicted me of that. You know? And so that's, he's going to do the same for you, and that's what the spirit of God does. He, he, re, he brings us to repentance, and that means a change of mind. And how does he do that? He impresses upon our consciousness our sin so we can put it off. We can identify it and put it off. So he's going to convict us of not only sin, but also of righteousness. And what, what is that? Convictions about what is right, what is wrong, and what is evil. Convictions about what is right and what is pleasing. That is a conviction of the knowledge of what is right, good, and pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, we become, we become convinced by Scripture that we ought to change in that area, and we're given divine enablement from the Spirit of God to actually change. Well, this is where the Scriptures come in. The Holy Spirit addresses your mind and informs your understanding with truth. He doesn't bypass your mind. He actually addresses your mind. So the Holy Spirit is not only the Holy Spirit but it says in John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes. So he is not only the Holy Spirit, but he is the spirit of truth. And so the Holy Spirit is working on our consciousness with truth. Now, a few other passages I'd like you to turn to 
is Romans 12, verse number 1, and then 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Romans 12 and verse number 2, I love this passage. I love this whole section of Scripture in Romans uh, because it's so pertinent to the practical part of the Christian life. But in Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, it says, and do we not, do not be conformed to this world. So in other words, don't get pressed into the thinking the sway of which the world goes, and of course it goes this way and it goes that way and it goes all over the place, and that's how the world goes. We, we just get swayed by you know, the media and the media pounding us with one particular thing, which may be true or not true today. Usually, who knows if it's true, right? Uh, and we get, but people, eventually, if you say things six times, people start believing it, whether it's true or not. All right, so here, what, what it says in Scripture is do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, where? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So a second passage that I mentioned is 1 Corinthians 14.20, and if you notice there, it says, brethren... Do not be children in your thinking. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil, be infants. In other words, when it comes to evil, you should be like a little kid. Doesn't mean that you don't understand evil, but you don't go there, right? It says, but in your thinking, be mature. So God is maturing us. He is bringing us from the milk of the word to the solid food of the word where we gain a lot of spiritual protein, right? You can't get good muscle mass without protein. You can't get good spiritual mass where you become strong without the the meat of the word of God, without the maturity that the word of God brings in our mind about how we're to think as believers. So the Holy Spirit is making this change in us through the word of God, through the truth of the word of God, and it's happening right in your mind. The word and the spirit go together and should not be separated. The word of God transforms us so that we develop a, actually we develop Deep, 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 strong biblical convictions based on Scripture. And then my conscience will not allow me to live against those convictions. All right? It doesn't mean you're not going to get tempted to go the opposite way. You will, but your convictions in the Word of God become so strong, you actually are able to say no to what you used to do before because the Spirit of God is making you strong to say no. I'm not going there anymore. Sorry. I'm not committing this sin anymore. Whether nobody knows about it except me, God knows. And so I'm not going there anymore. See, that's the way you begin to think. And now it brings us right into the presence of God every day. I am becoming holy because God is holy and God sees where I'm developing in my holiness. So as I develop deep convictions which comes from a transformed mind, we will desire what is right. We will desire to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord Jesus Christ in all our behavior. That's what Peter is saying. That's why I wanted to spend time in this area. So in other words, here's the bottom line. Pursue holiness. The Spirit of God's made us sanctified and holy, but now you pursue it. You learn the word of God until it changes your mind and gives you deep conviction so you could serve God the right way. Now, Jerry Bridges, in his book on holiness, has some very, and these are the last three things I'm going to give you this morning, is in the pursuit of holiness, because I think they're so incredibly important. And to do this, I want you to turn, at least initially, to Hebrews chapter, now, if you're in Peter there, Hebrews is just a few books ahead of that. Hebrews chapter 12, in verse number 14, and it says this, Pursue peace with all men 
Hebrews 12, 14, and the sanctification. Now, some may have holiness there. Here's a place where the New American Standard translates it sanctification. I think ESV has holy. Does it? ESV have holy? It has holy. It says holy without which no one will see the Lord. So the Bible says if you're not developing holiness, you're not, not going to see the Lord. So we are to pursue holiness, that is sanctification, because it is our responsibility as God's children and our responsibility to the members of the community of believers to be holy. And why is that? Well, the first thing, if you look in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and verse number 10, it says, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All right, in other words, holiness is required, first of all, for our well-being. Remember, God's goal when he disciplines us uh, is that we would share in that passage in, in his holiness. In other words, if you're not going to deal with your sin, if you're not going to put off your sin, if the church is not going to deal with your sin, God will. If you're one of his kids, he's not going to allow you to live any old way you want. He's going, to, he's going to, if you don't want to step into this area to be holy, he will discipline you, right? Bring something into your life, and there's a manifold things God can bring into your life to discipline you in a particular area of sinning, all right? For what reason? Not to destroy you. But what? So you can share in his holiness, so you can carry out the command to be holy. See, the goal, this is the goal. He does correct us, drives out the sin that is still in us, but only in order that we may be more truly the children of God who we, he would have us be. And be sure of this, he will have us be holy. That's who he is, that is his will for us, and it will happen if you're a child of God. God has not called us to uncleanness but or impurity, says the Apostle Paul. He has called us to holiness. So we are called to and must earnestly strive for personal and practical holiness of life. And that means believers are to be set apart from evil but separated to God, consecrated, and entirely given up to his service. So it's for our well-being. A second thing is this. Holiness is, re- is necessary for our effective service. Without turning there, if you'd like to turn there, you can, but this is what it says in the passage in 2 Timothy. It says, therefore, I'm reading from the ESV, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So in other words, it's for effective service. Remember, God is growing you in holiness so you can effectively serve. And a lot of times people don't serve is because they have sin, they, they have not put off, and they have not put on righteousness, and they're not pursuing holiness. Until they do that, sometimes they're stuck in the mud. Don't stay there too long before God's hand of discipline comes down upon you. And of course, this is a big one, and I do want you to look again at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, and it's this, that holiness is required for assurance of salvation. Why is it that people are not assured of their salvation? Why is that? Do you know you're a believer? I hope I am. I try to be. Those are not good answers. Those are not good answers. We need to know where on the inside and then proved by the outside in behavior that we are the children of God. Jerry Bridges said, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. I agree with it. If you know nothing of holiness, you shouldn't flatter yourself that you are a Christian. 
Here's the bottom line. It is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven, but those who live holy lives. Their holy progress is manifest more and more in their thinking, their words, their actions, their outlook, their worldview, and their passions and desires. And then again in verse number 14 again, it says, in fact, you can't see the Lord without holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord or sanctification without no one will see the Lord. Set-apart Christians are to reflect attitudes and behaviors consistent with their new relationship with God in Christ. Keep pursuing a life that is more and more set apart unto the Lord. Therefore, the Christian community should be a living example of harmony and holiness wherever you look. And all this talk of holiness includes the thought of approaching God. God is holy and must be approached in holy fear. The Heavenly Father is not only a good and a loving parent, but he is a judge who demands obedience. See, many people have the idea that the Old Testament prophets preached about the fear of God and the New Testament teachers only about the love of God. However, there are many places in the New Testament that will change one's thinking on this matter. In fact, Jesus and the entire New Testament bids us to fear God. Now, why why do I bring that up at this point? It's because if you take your Bibles and turn back to Peter, 1 Peter, This is what we've covered. The Christians are exhorted to have a fixed hope. Christians are exhorted to have a holy life. Christians are exhorted to have, to fear God. Verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. You see what that says there? That's, that's not talking to unbelievers. That's talking to people who are Christians pursuing holiness. It's talking to us. We, we have to learn how to fear God. I'm going to deal with that next week. Let's pray. Lord, your word again, it's very piercing, Lord. it brings to our attention things that we did not know. But Lord, when we do know them, now Lord, because of your spirit, give us the cooperation and divine enablement that go together to be able to put these things into practice so we, Lord, would be people who not not only understand holiness, but actually pursue it. And I pray, Lord, that we would do that in all our behavior. Lord, allow us to see the fruit of what you're working in on the inside, on the outside. So, Lord, we can grow in our confidence and assurance of our salvation. And I pray, Lord, in doing so, we know we reflect your character. And your character is one of being a holy God who is different so different than us and set apart from anything that is sinful or evil. So let us be people that are like that. And I know, Lord, that in a holy life, it becomes a powerful life. It becomes a life of convictions, but still it's a life of joy and it's a life of peace. And it's a life that is good for my well-being as well as the well-being of those who I serve with and grow with in Christ. So, Lord, impress on our heart today the things that we must change, the things that we must lay aside for good. And I pray, Lord Jesus, and then also the things that we need to put on
that we have not put on. And I pray in doing so, Lord, we truly would carry out this command in Scripture to be holy because you're holy in all our behavior. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.